Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Our podcast. The Okavango Delta in Botswana stands as a pristine oasis of biodiversity. A UNESCO World Heritage Site, its preservation requires not only a deep understanding of its intricate ecosystems, but also respectful consultation with its local cultures. The impact of that work on Steve Boyce, founder of the National Geographic Okavango Wilderness Project, forged a deep connection between Boyce and the people of the region. Boys shares his perspective on the sources of their sustenance and the sacred places in our lives. Think about where your water comes from, where the food you eat comes from. But most importantly, connect yourself to a place. It doesn't have to be exactly where you live. It can be a beach you always go to, a pond, something. You care so much about it that yes, if someone was to threaten that river, you would put your life on the line for it and feel that. And if people can feel that around the world, we've solved all of our problems. Esri's David Gadsden investigates Boy's remarkable journey and how he used geographic information systems, or GIS technology, while working with local communities and honoring their traditional knowledge to preserve the region's immense ecology. Hello, Steve, and welcome to the Esri and the Science of War podcast. Thanks for having me. So your exploration has taken you to some of the most remote corners in Africa. Can you help set the table a little bit to provide us some context of the landscapes you work in and and just the geography of, of these places. All of my exploration has started in the Okavango Delta. It's in the middle of the Kalahari Desert, but the driest place in Southern Africa, semi-arid. It's the end of this giant river in the middle of the desert. It doesn't go to the ocean. The largest elephant population in the world. It was the 4th of June, 2014, in Doha, Qatar, where it was announced that the Okavango Delta is now our planet's 1,000th UNESCO World Heritage Site. It was two, three months after that, we were in Angola. It was considered to be impossible to work in Angola. There were no conservation or research projects there for decades. We drive up there and it is armored vehicles. We're with the Halo Trust up through two minefields. There's no roads into these, this landscape. It's just cut marks and trees. The Lutazi, when we eventually meet them, you find that it's a bark-based industry. They build their homes fish traps, boats, everything out of bark. We explored every major river and tributary for the Okavango, then the Kwandu. Uh, now we're doing the Zambezi. We just finished all of those tributaries out of Angola. Now, I have been to pretty much every country in sub-Saharan Africa. I've seen it all and never experienced anything like this. We're finding that there are these water towers all the way up. Uh, there are these undocumented peatlands. The community, certainly our team is going up like what we've seen in the South Sudan now is extraordinary and the world's going to learn about that quite soon. That throughout the Democratic Republic of Congo there are these water tower structures and that is uh, through GIS that we can find that because you can start to understand okay it's at this altitude okay how do mist belts form how does the peach form okay it's got to do with washes from the rivers okay looking at the sort of the valley structures and that is showing us not only that we've got this water tower structure and it puts out 423 cubic kilometers of water. I mean, that's 10 times the annual water usage for the whole of the state of California, where we are now. The greatest rivers of the region all have this resilience that we didn't know about. Uh, the Okavango is, like I said, it's where my, my journey started. And it was seen as this delicate flower in the desert. And um, it's going to dry up. We're going to lose it. You know, what's happening in Angola? And we found that it's, it's, it's far more resilient than we thought it was. It's far away from its breaking point. It's a good news story. We have found problems on the Namibia section of the river where they've, a lot of their people, because of COVID, were displaced onto the river to do smallhold farming. The government started doing large pivot farms and massive pump schemes. We were like, well, oh, is this causing damage to the river? And we 
now I'll survey that section of river every year. And we look at it and yes, there's nitrates in, in here that is actually poisonous to people now and it's causing E. coli flushes and people are, are, are getting sick from this and you need to move these farms away from the river. But we can also say to them, you can continue to use the water. We're not complaining about that. Uh, you can actually farm a bit more. Local people can use more. Uh, mo local people can benefit more from the river. So it's a, it's a good news story. In so many ways, you were um, initially documenting and bringing both exploration and science to this journey. What was the importance of science as you explored this, this new geography? It was, it was the hole in the map. It was the gap. It was that, that, that empty spot. We looked at maps from the Library of Congress. And uh, these are from the 1700s, 1800s, and to the 1950s. No source lakes there. Up until the 1850s, they're still not drawing the rivers correctly. And that's all of the maps. You can see the roots of all of the British explorers, whether it's Livingston, Cameron, the uh, uh, Serpapinto, Silverporto, all of the Portuguese explorers and traders. Their roots that they used, and they just didn't go there. They didn't go to the Terra de Finlum window. The land at the end of the earth. If you go into the 1950s and 60s, look at those maps, they're starting to draw the rivers properly, but there's still no lakes. And, you know, we discover that the lakes are sacred. Um, if you put a village next to the lake, it will be consumed by the lake. You can hear drums beating where villages have been consumed. You have uh, Mukisi living in the lake. It is a large serpentine uh, river monster, river spirit, water spirit that protects the lakes. You cannot fish there. Um, and I'm convinced from looking at those old maps and the big gaps and the fact that there are no lakes, that they were hidden from those explorers. They didn't take them there. We wouldn't have found any of these lakes. You can't see in the satellite imagery, you can see the lakes. It would look like wetlands because they're so clear and they're bleached by the acidity. You can't see the single tracks, the footpaths to them in the forests. That's what, we can't see that. But now these people arrive, us, okay, and for the first time, we have satellite imagery. We're like, no, we can see it. Like, we want to go there. And they're like, okay, we'll take you there. But there's certain terms, you know, and uh, they explain how sacred it is. They explain Mokisi and, and what we can and cannot do there and how long we can be there. And um, it was GIS, really, satellite imagery that, that, you know, for the first time told someone from the outside world that the lakes were actually there. So you've, you've helped advance a tremendous amount of understanding about this geography and these systems. How does that translate into conservation outcomes and, and benefits even for those communities who you met along that journey? You've got the, the Global Biodiversity Information Facility, GBIF. And you, know, you ask the, to produce the map for you know, plants or large mammals, whatever it is, uh, from the different collections on, on its database. And Angola is almost perfectly outlined, but there are little yellow dots for in Angola, probably 2,000 out of the millions in Africa, safe for birds. And it's the Terra de Fundamunda, the land at the end of the earth, the Angolan Islands water tower, perfectly outlined. There's nothing, nothing there. And we feel that in, uh, in a hundreds of species not known to be in Angola that we find there in 143 new species to science. Uh, and it is now an emerging center of endemism in the 21st century. It's a key biodiversity area. It's going to be one of the world's largest Ramsar sites. Uh, because of the peatlands and the source lakes and this publication. And, you know, when you look at the protection of it, and we've, we, we're like, oh, we, we're going to create the largest national park in the world, uh, uh, we, community conservation areas. And in talking to the people, we talked to the, the 
Regidors and the Sobers. These are the chiefs, the chiefs of chiefs. There's about 90 of them for all of those villages, 29 villages. It's the traditional and religious leaders of Tempe. That's what they call themselves. So you sit with them and we've had many, many, many meetings with them. And they will teach you about conservation for a week. You know, uh, it's just how to burn forests, to optimize for honey, for wildlife, where you cannot, where you don't hunt, what hunting seasons are. All of these mechanisms to protect biodiversity and forest ecology and productivity. There are customs and traditions around everything associated with clean water and protecting forest and protecting everything. And it is, it is built into the traditions of Lilichazi. So they know that. And then they can they teach us. We're writing this down. And when we come to them and start talking about, okay, this is what a, a game reserve could be, or a national park, or a biosphere reserve, okay, it has the animals, it's a core area, uh, it's the source for all of the things, there's hunting over here, and there's farming, and you know, and they'll look at that, and they go, okay, well, you know, within half an hour, they go, know what you're talking about, you know, like we have areas where we don't allow hunting, and those, that's totemic, a lot of the, all the families have animal totems, and they'll protect those animals in those areas. So we can understand that, but the question is, it's, you know, they always ask at the end, to end it, it's just, but, you know, how can we possibly protect a place that we can't go? Is it like, you know, what's the, what's the point in that, you know? And you, you, you find that protected areas as we see them in the United States or Europe or, or in South Africa, we're part of the ecology, uh, and um, that's rooted in tradition, and tradition's rooted in culture, and culture's rooted in language. And um, we actually are losing languages faster than species in Africa right now. And that is a real threat because it's these traditions that have protected. And that's why Africa has megafauna. We have great migrations. We have elephants and lions and all of the things that people associate with Africa. And that's because of the people and the traditions. So I don't know what we need up in the Angolan Highlands water tower beyond acknowledgement of all of that, doing things to... In the, in the education and in the development of a conservation economy and opportunity and prosperity in that landscape for the Luchazi that they can control that future. I mean, we're making large-scale investments now uh, with our partners into building bridges and schools and clinics and uh, small-medium enterprises and honey and construction and all kinds of things that we're doing up there. Uh, medicinal plants and timber, everything. But that's after eight years of talking and trusting and getting to know each other. It's not just coming in and going, wow, scientifically this is important, there's new species, in the lakes and there's peatlands here. Definitely we must protect this and we have a plan for you, <laughs> you know, and plug it in. And that's happened everywhere else. And when that happens, it is the NGO or the parastatal that's doing it. They will give up at some point, leave, and then it stops, you know, and they'll try and recover back to what they were doing, you know. It didn't grow out of the community. It didn't grow out of um, the people. Didn't feel pride and ownership, and that's that is essential to what we do: pride and ownership. I know that there's a lot of effort going into the new global biodiversity framework to acknowledge uh, indigenous managed areas and on an equal level to, you know, a, a national park. And there's still much, much work to do. Is there a connection between the the science and the sort of the empirical observations that you made along the journey? that then go back and support a planning process where across different cultural boundaries, you know, indigenous people, government, NGOs, are you able to set the table in a way that's leading to better planning and outcomes because of it? Is there a role there in how the technology contributed? 
I mean, just wildlife monitoring, understanding uh, where the wildlife corridors should be and could be. That is local hunters, forest guardians, river guardians, with survey one, two, three forms, uh, with cyber tracker uh, going out there. Uh, the cyber tracker is for when you're not literate. I mean, it's pictures. I've just seen a lion. I've just seen a lechwe and geotagged and it's there uh, in our database. It's like citizen science, community science, you know, local, local science. We set up traditional knowledge trails. These are footpaths and Mokoro trails. These are dugout canoe trails through the Delta and up in Angola that have been used for hundreds of years by local people. They have wonderful stories to tell about these trails. And um, the more frequently people can go up and down, then we can put a 360 camera on a motorbike and the guy will go down a trail and we will get a full 360 immersive experience from that. And he's now just monitored habitat quality uh, at that moment in time. And we can do it again next year or next week if we want to. It doesn't cost us anything. But engaging local people in monitoring their own um, uh, systems, which is something that they are passionate about once they understand um, that. Because you know, one of the things that our team is, focuses on trying to do is, and we're talking to Esri about, is how do we visualize this very quickly? You know, because the feedback has to come quickly, you know. As to okay, you went on that bike ride, or you, or the, all of you went out over the last month monitoring lions, and you came up with this. Here it is, a foot on the map. Because I mean, you know, eight years ago, when six, seven years ago, when we were introducing the concept of maps <laughs> to to the Lizardsy, um, they're still kind of lost in the end. But now they know because their maps are on the ground. I mean, they're describing a route. It's a way in two D this way, you know, three D. Um, it's not a map looking down at it from the sky. They don't look at things from the sky. But um, they do, they can see that now. Um, it's just giving feedback. I mean, when you can have a dashboard that's telling, a, telling them the flood is arriving in two weeks' time uh, into the Delta, and it's going to be this big, and it's probably going to spread this fast, that. No, we just don't, I mean, we need to communicate that to farmers, to people that want to operate uh, Makoro trails. And providing that information as quickly as possible to the people that are, are gathering that information obviously encourages them to do it. But people, local people, I always say this, it is the future of conservation is local. And that, that is it. The starting point is the people that decided to stay when everyone else left. You know, That's indigenous. Like you, the person that will stand in front of a chainsaw and stop them from cutting your forest down. You stayed there because you love, you want to live traditionally. You want, you're connected to the land. Okay, that's, that's, the, that's the association we make in the Amazon or in a remote forest in, in Africa. But I take a different view on it where I'm at a conference in Germany or here in the United States. A person will ask me, well, what can we do? Because I've given some terrifying talk on we lose a species every seven minutes. And that is, care about the future of your children. Think about where your water comes from, where the food you eat comes from. But most importantly, connect yourself to a place. It doesn't have to be exactly where you live. It can be a beach you always go to, a pond, something. You care so much about it that yes, if someone was to threaten that river, uh, you would put your life on the line for it and, and feel that. And if people could feel that around the world, we've solved all of our problems. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an incredible education. Oh, it's been my pleasure being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of War podcast. And thanks to Steve Boyce for explaining the role of GIS in safeguarding one of the world's most critical environments. If you like this episode, please share it with a colleague.